This is One Path with Metro Health, your toolkit for helping to combat the opioid epidemic as a member of the medical community with empathy, mindfulness, and a big picture perspective. I'm Libby Palaya, educator within Metro Health's Department of Opioid Safety. Thanks for joining us. Today, we'll be diving into the relatively new field of enhanced recovery after surgery, or ERAS. The mindful curation of a patient's recovery process after surgery is one of the most proactive steps a hospital system can take in preventing opioid dependence in its patients. Dr. Marcos Izquierdo, an anesthesiologist at Metro Health, helped implement the ARIS program at Metro Health. He says that this multidisciplinary approach has existed for about 20 years already. It started in in Europe, and the concept slowly made its way over to the U.S., and considering it's such a a big project for each hospital, it's taken some time to implement at various hospitals. But it's it's really a process that puts the, the patient at the center of the experience and kind of challenges a lot of old dogmas and philosophies with surgical recovery. At its core, ARIS exists to push patients to be more involved in their care, starting with education enhancing and optimizing nutrition pre-op, and making sure that all of their expectations are aligned with with ours. Uh, But then from there, really getting rid of the um, nothing to eat after midnight and staying in bed for days after surgery and, and switching that more towards allowing patients to continue to eat a little bit closer to surgery and then afterwards get them moving, get their diet started and get them out of bed as quickly as possible. And all of this is focused on, on really trying to keep a, a balance, trying to maintain an, as close to a normal physiologic state or keep the patient as close to where they are normally. And, and it's been really shown to improve outcomes after surgery. Dr. Brooke Watts of Internal Medicine at Metro Health is also a significant advocate for and participant in the ARIS program. You know, we all know that surgical procedures can be painful, and we certainly want um, our patients to feel like they've had uh, the best experience possible. So we've uh, been working to establish some of these best practices. So one of the first things we did was to join a, a, a national collaborative focusing on enhanced recovery after surgery programs um, for certain groups of patients. And um, this starts from the very beginning, and it means helping patients to understand what's going to happen around the time of surgery, because it, it's no surprise that if things are uncertain or unknown, patient's experience of going through it will be heightened or heightened in a negative way, right? Uh, if you know what to expect and you know what to do about it or what's going to be done about it it's, uh, and you feel like you have a degree of control, it's, it's certainly a lot easier to face those kinds of uh, challenges like pain. Dr. Watts says that a lot of ARIS best practices run in tandem with many traditional, universally utilized methods for pre-surgical preparation. I'm sure you've, everybody's heard, you know, nothing to eat or drink after midnight, right? It turns out that that is a one-size-fits-all that doesn't make sense. <laughs> and and it, it took sort of reflecting on what, again, what it means to be, um, you know, going through a surgical process. So it turns out that having people be caffeine-deprived and dehydrated and pretty stressed out and grumpy because they hadn't had anything to eat or drink might not be a good thing. Go figure. <laughs> She says that while the rule of not eating any solid foods after midnight the day before your surgery still applies, clear liquids are a different story. Having clear liquids up to three hours before your surgery 
is a very acceptable practice for most patients. Not all patients, but most patients. And this becomes particularly important because um, our surgeons obviously operate throughout the day. And if you're that afternoon case and you know, you're used to having that caffeine in the morning or, or something, you know, to drink. There, there's really something very different about, you know, sitting home and being able to sip on tea, you know, clear liquid for most of the morning um, than, you know, sort of waiting in that terrible holding pattern of nothing eat, or to eat or drink and having that, that caffeine headache. And another example would be mobilization or getting people up, right? And I think one of the things, you know, there was a sense at some point that, you know, and it was old school that bed rest was a good thing. And it turns out there's just about hardly anything that bed rest is a good thing for. And it's a best practice, for example, now for um, orthopedic surgery patients who are getting joint surgery to have their first physical therapy session the day of their procedure. It makes a lot of sense. And the more we get people back to feeling like themselves and the better we, the more we sort of move around so that our breathing is normal and our, our bowels are normal <laughs> uh, and starting, you know, to get people um, really just feeling like themselves. Turns out that that's better for physical, reco physical recovery and of course for emotional recovery as well. We need to work through the experiences of the individual patient uh, to make sure that we're really meeting all the needs. Dr. Watts says that a lot of these changes are, frankly, you know, I hate to say it, but I think it really comes back to, to common sense that we need to do uh, what we call, which I love, co-production of healthcare, which means that or really recognizes that the, the patient is the person experiencing the disease state and the recovery. And that if that experience isn't central, um, then we won't we can't um, can't be successful in getting to the outcomes that we're looking for. So we have to co-produce the healthcare with the patient. It seems so silly that we wouldn't think about, okay, what works for you, right? What is the right thing for you um, in your situation? And what are those options that we can give you to help you manage your pain that are right for you? And, you know, I think the, the moment for me, and this is something that we're still working towards, is really reflecting on the things that we all do at home to make ourselves feel better, whether it's we've had a bad day or we are having pain. Dr. Watts shared that she was struck by the lack of basic comforts provided for those in the hospital. One of the smaller things that we were able to do here, which I'm really proud of, is we did move towards a room service menu. What that means is that you as the patient, you're not subject to picking things off what we put on the menu for the day. There's a set menu, and if you really want to order chicken soup every day, that's okay. You can do that. <laughs> and but I think there's something to be said for that. Or if you're something, if you want to eat, breakfast is available all day. So if, if pancakes is the only thing that sits on your stomach right now, then you, it's okay to eat pancakes for dinner. You do not have to have our yucky hospital meatloaf. Although I heard meatloaf is quite good, but <laughs> it may not be my for, my first choice. Dr. Izquierdo agrees that individually, a lot of the elements practiced in ARIS are not revolutionary. But what enhanced recovery does is brings all the services together in, at, at the same table and, and work together to be more consistent in these practices with as many patients as, as we can. Um, and, and that's everybody from you know the nurses in the surgery clinic, the surgeons, some of the physician assistants, and then nutrition, physical therapy, uh, the perioperative nurses, and then the, the nurses on the recovery floors, so the surgical floors, who will be taking care of patients afterwards. 
In addition to some of these more common-sense practices in ERIS, a big part of the program involves educating patients on what their options for managing post-op pain will be. This is where the goals of the Office of Opioid Safety and the ARIS program intersect. One of the main goals of the Office of Opioid Safety is, is prevention of the development of this disease, and, and the disease being you know, opioid addiction or abuse. And enhanced recovery, that's one of the, um, one of the main factors. It's called a multimodal or opioid-sparing anesthesia, where we really minimize the exposure to opioids. It doesn't mean we're not going to treat somebody's pain with opioids. It just means that there's a lot of other options and medications that we can use and anesthetic techniques to minimize exposure to opioids. For many patients, we can use non-narcotic approaches to pain relief that may be very helpful. And the way I describe this to people is all those things that you would do at home to make yourself feel better when when you're uncomfortable, we want to be able to offer you those sorts of things in the hospital as well. As a first thought, right? So is that an ice pack? Is that a heat pack? Is that pillows for re- repositioning? Is that, um, you know, taking a hot shower? Is that um, particular foods that might make you feel better? But those things should really be first and foremost on our list to try to offer to patients rather than jumping right to pills, you know, and specifically pain pills for discomfort that can be expected around times of surgery. And then the second thing is, you know, thinking about other kinds of pain relief. I think, you know, it's easy to jump to thinking that narcotics are the choice. And I think in some ways patients have come to accept that. But we also know that often things like anti-inflammatories or as we talked about for direct treatment like ice may provide more relief uh, and better relief without side effects than narcotics. So again, really discussing those sorts of things with our patients so they understand the options and can make some informed choices. Dr. Izquierdo says that he believes it's key for different hospital departments to share their data and work together to create the best possible outcomes for patients. So that patients are educated coming into surgery about how we're going to manage their pain you know, set the expectations that there will be some pain after surgery and opioids aren't the only answer. Again, I think part of that is understanding that there, there is a risk of ongoing opioid misuse for all patients coming to surgery. You know, whether you, you have a history of addiction or, or not, all patients coming to surgery, they just by the, by the fact that they're having surgery and getting opioids perioperatively, you know, during surgery, after surgery, puts them at risk of developing a disorder or, or an issue with opioids. Decreasing opioids is, is one goal of the Enhanced Recovery Program. Um, the, the Institute of, of Healthcare Improvement kind of defined quality and care as, as, as a triple aim, so three pieces. Uh, one is improving patient outcomes. Uh, one is improving the patient experience uh, and then doing all of that at a lower cost of care. And so if you can kind of compare that to buying a car, you, know, you can get a better car. Uh, you can get a better buying experience where, uh, you know, you're not getting harassed by the salesman. And then at the same time, pay a lower price for the car. I think everybody will agree that that would be an excellent outcome in the car buying experience. And then, and then in addition to that, I'll say that the, the opioid outcomes is just one part of it. And, and actually, the, like I, I mentioned before, this, these concepts started more than 20 years ago, which was before the opioid, opioid epidemic. 
So it, it was really more initially about um, improving safety, decreasing the side effects of opioid medications. And, and this kind of started as they realized that these medications that we have can all work synergistically. They can work together uh, and have a better effect and not only have a better effect for pain control, but reducing the side effects of each individual medication. And, and that's all of this started. And then, and then obviously the, with the opioid epidemic, it was, it, it then became time to really make a move with enhanced recovery. I think it was an opportunity to get ahead and, it just as one piece of, of all of the different measures to reduce opioids in the community, it was a great time to kind of work collaboratively with everybody to, to meet the same goals. And, and we were able to, to do that and at the same time improving some of these patient outcomes. Doctors need to make sure that they're giving patients the correct amount of opioids for their individual situation and condition so that they aren't burdened with the extra pills. But until that happens, it's important that there are accessible ways to dispose of these extras. And I think it's all um, becoming much more apparent to all of us that giving people opportunities to do that easily and safely is really important. Uh, And I've been really pleased to see, I think, as others have been, uh, how many communities have stepped up with options for safe disposal. So I think it's just that reminder to people that, you know, leaving these things sitting around in cabinets for years on end is is probably not a best, isn't a best practice, and that we have safe ways to help get rid of pills if there do happen to be some extra. So, I mean, again, I think it's having options. It it never did make sense, right? So in, in essence, we very simply changed the defaults in the electronic health record, working very closely with our informatics colleagues. This is a best practice and something that we would encourage any health system to do that hasn't hasn't approached it. It's a systems fix, right? So it's not dependent on someone's individual behavior. Change the number in the default in the electronic health record so that the automatic isn't erring towards a larger larger number of pills. Pretty simple and works really well. Um, moving people away from that automatic reflex of prescribing opioids in the perisurgical period and our, our providers to reducing those can, has had a dramatic reduction in the amount of opioid usage. Dr. Watt says that the reality is we all have pain all the time, and we all have our own set of coping techniques for that pain. The more we can use those as a part of the foundation and then supplement, obviously, with other alternatives such as pills that will, are needed under certain, certain circumstances, that makes sense. But to think that the pills were the first option all the time for everybody, um, you know, that wasn't common sense. And I'm really grateful that we've had the opportunity to have the conversations about what it really means holistically to deal with discomfort and headache. So I think this is really taking the evidence and putting it into a holistic place of quality, safety, and experience. And it's a good reminder, and I think the whole conversation about opioids is a good reminder that we have to constantly question the way we do things and the why and the way we do things. And I think many of the things that we do around the time of surgery, we were doing just because it was the way we always did them. Next time on One Path. Most people who have substance use disorders have suffered a lot of trauma and a lot of people don't get a chance to really discuss that. We talk about community engagement. 
One Path with Metro Health is a production of Evergreen Podcasts, produced, written, and engineered by Hannah Ray Leach and mixed by Sean Rule Hoffman. Special thanks to Mike Tobin, Carolyn Tobian, Joan Papp, Joya Riff, and the entire Department of Opioid Safety in making this show possible. You can learn more about OnePath, access opioid safety resources, and get connected with our team at OnePathPodcast.com. Thanks for joining us.